You're listening to The Future Is Now, the official podcast of Handelsdagarna 2020. In today's episode, our host Ludwig Hartler meets Fredrik Wester, the president of video game publisher Paradox Interactive. Under the lead of Fredrik, Paradox has grown into one of Sweden's largest video game publishers with a market cap of over 15 billion Swedish crowns and successful franchises like City Skylines. Okay, so to begin with, uh, Fredrik, welcome to uh, the podcast of Handels Dagarna 2020. Oh, thank you very much. And we Good are to be here. very pleased to have you here. Yeah, thank um, you. So I guess my first question is uh, what you're currently up to. What's your current mood? Uh, well, I'm, I'm in a very good mood. I yeah. mean, uh, <clears throat> running a company is always, it's always chaotic. So, and we're in the middle of a few chaotic things right now, but it makes you, it gives even more energy for you to work. So... I would say that so spending half my time in Spain and half my time in Sweden has been a very good uh, combination, at least for me, to uh, rest almost one week. I only work in Spain and then I come here and I feel all the energy and the pulse of the office. So it's an excellent, excellent opportunity for me. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned you, you live in Spain and it's, it's a, since uh, a year kind of? Yeah, I, I moved there at the same time as I stepped off as CEO, so just over a year ago. And uh, so I moved the whole family down there and uh, we had a couple of things we were looking for in the city when we moved there, like a beach and good weather and a couple of other things. I'm a big football uh, fan as well. So uh, I just recently went to see FC Barcelona play Dortmund here in the Champions League. So yeah, so it was a good trade up in that aspect, but then also keeping what you have, all the all the good stuff with Stockholm. It's a, uh, Stockholm has a tech hub and as <clears throat> like the northern like capital of everything that has to do with entertainment as well when it comes to gaming so That's you don't want to miss out on that yeah no definitely um do, do they speak about stockholm when you're in spain do you do you ever hear about it that way or well i, I get invited to a lot of gaming uh events in in the, Bar- in the barcelona area uh, mm-hmm. because stockholm has a very good reputation i mean people in general know stockholm but they know it mostly as a cold place so <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Which I guess it's part of the truth. It's part of the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, people there are, I, I don't, to be honest, I, I mostly hang out with other expats. Okay. And they know a lot about Sweden. But yeah. the Catalans specifically, it's it's mostly through my son's football team that I actually speak to actual Catalan people. And uh, we, my Spanish is a bit too weak and their English is a bit too weak as well to have a meaningful exchange. But I'm getting there. I'm taking Spanish lessons now like one to two times a week. Okay. So, you know, so I'm getting there. And so how, how's your, because you stepped down as CEO, uh, and within that, you know, within, within the same time, you also moved to Spain. So how, how has your day-to-day life changed? Well, today I, I work a lot with, um, with new business, um, with like new business areas, new business models maybe for Paradox, things that we can do a lot better. I work a lot with leadership as well uh, within the company. I've, I've been holding some leadership courses externally as well to see what do people actually appreciate and think is good that we can bring internally to Paradox and become even better. One of the biggest challenges today when leading a company that is in growth uh, is the leadership. Because a lot of people will have their first management job here. They come from school, maybe. They work a couple of years here and they get their first management position, uh, manager position. And uh, it's a challenge. And people have a tendency to underestimate how great the challenge actually is in leading people because... There's so many things and nuances and things that can go wrong. But if you actually 
kind of guide people in how to lead, a lot of wins are gained early on, I think, in a growing company like this. So leadership and new business, that's where I yeah. put my emphasis today. But uh, mostly in Spain, I reply to emails and uh, sit on the phone a lot. Okay, okay. But but you're still operational when you are in Spain. Oh, so yeah, yeah, say, yeah, 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 yeah. I still work. I, I don't work. like Previously, I could work 10 to 14 hours a day when I was here in Stockholm. Now I'm probably at seven, eight hours a day. So it's a difference. But uh, I've been thinking about this company 24-7 for the last 16 years, and that hasn't changed. I can imagine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's still the same. So what do you know? So you have about five hours extra a day now when you're in Spain compared to when you were CEO. Yeah. What do you, what do you fill that time with? I do a lot. Like, so I, I mentioned uh, my kids play football. So I drive to uh, football practice and football games and I try to follow them in their schoolwork and uh, try to be more active as a parent, actually. So that's most of my time actually goes to that uh, instead of working. So that feels good. Um, and uh, I guess walking the dog takes much more time than I actually thought it would as well. <laughs> so we got a dog when we moved down, and, and she requires a lot of, of attention as well. So. Yeah, okay. So. But that's a good, like, walking the dog is a good way to think about the company as well. So I guess that qualifies yeah. us working 50% or something. It's a kind of meditation in some... Yeah. Uh, Form of, yeah. Some yeah. sort of mindfulness meditation yeah, right yeah. in there, yeah. yeah. So I was thinking, so you, when, when, you, uh, when you took over Paradox in 2004, you were seven employees. And today you're well over 200. Yeah, 500. Right? 500. 500, wow. yeah. Dependently, I, you have some old numbers probably. So when you're a leader in a team of seven, you can actually sit down like we are doing right now and you, you can communicate, you can talk to people. Um, how do you go about maintaining the same? Because, I mean, I'm guessing there's kind of a top-down hierarchy where, where you have your ideas about how you want to lead the company, but that has to spread down. So how, how do you go about that? that? That has to be a challenge. It is. The bigger you get, the, the harder the challenge actually is. And <clears throat> first of all, leading on a guiding vision is very hard. Uh, you have to explain, like, why are we here to begin with? What's the over-arcing like, idea on why we even have this company to begin with? And why do all 500 people who work here work somewhat in the same direction? And when you start breaking that down into departments and then into different key performance indicators to get people to work towards the right goals, our goal is at the level closest to where the work is actually done is where the decisions are made and there's a lot of autonomy as well. So <clears throat> the, we, we strive to have small and autonomous teams. I'm not saying that we're succeeding right now with that. We have some teams are bigger and some t- teams are reliant a lot upon others to get their like directions and so on and so forth but in over a five-year time period the the change goes towards smaller and more autonomous teams so they can have their own idea on how do we actually tap into the overall vision of paradox and what are the kpis that we have that drives towards that vision so uh, that's how i would like the company to be organized yeah okay i I mean I, i imagine that has to be. You say you, you're striving for it, and I, I, right. I can imagine that that is a challenge. When I listened to you in in earlier podcasts that you, that you've done, I think one leadership value that that you often that you most often mention, I would say, that kind of uh, touched me a little bit is the to see the world as it is. Yeah, you mentioned that a lot, and being humble and brave enough, kind of to see the world as it is and go from there. And I, I'm thinking that that seems to be. Uh, something that you've reflected upon and that is 
clear guiding point for you. Yeah, so I, I'm quite curious in how you extrapolated that that idea to let that guide kind of the whole map. Was that something personal that that you have kind of extrapolated and let? Are you letting that guide the company, or is it from a management philosophy, or is it from something that you learned from your own life? I would say, first and foremost, is something that we have learned that is working here. So every time we have hoped for something that we, in our hearts, knew didn't really work, yeah. it's never going to work. So, but, but seeing the way the world actually works instead of the way you hope it works is the key to almost everything. So if you, if you connect that to another thing, which is transparency, if you ask about like, if everyone knows why we're doing things together, if we're in the same company, we have our o- overall vision, this is why we run Paradox. Yeah. Then I can say, if I make decisions to reach that why, we can argue over the decisions as long as we know why we're doing this together. So arguing over the operational instead of arguing over the vision is very important. But if you argue over the uh, operational without knowing the vision, then you just spend a lot of energy because no one really knows why you're arguing in the first place, right? And then you combine that with the vision that we have is actually in conjunction with, it actually speaks well with what reality actually looks like because it has to. And that's the biggest difference between a politician and an entrepreneur because a politician can hope for things all the time because if you take a Swedish government or the American president, they're only in the term for four years. So all they have to hope for is that during this four, four, four years, everything is not going to fall apart. It's still going to somehow stick together. So, and they're going to hope for it. So if you hope for it really hard, it might actually happen. As an entrepreneur, you have to have a 10-year vision on how this is going to come together. If you don't want to dump, like sell the company and dump it in someone else's knee, but I don't have that vision at all. So I want to run Paradox to be as great as it can ever be. And then the most important thing is, are we doing the right things in the environment where we're actually active? What are the, I know Mal, is it Malcolm Gladwell? Uh, the um, no, it's not. It's the book "Good to Great." What's the uh, author? Uh, oh, I, I've I've actually read it. Uh, I've read it a couple of times. The Three Mile March and the Paranoid. Yeah, <laughs> and he calls it brutal facts. He says, "What are the brutal facts yeah, that faces your organization?" Jim uh, Jim Collins. Jim Collins. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much. That's correct. Malcolm Gladwell is another guy. Yeah. He writes some interesting books too. But so so that is it's. I think I got some ideas from there as well. The brutal facts idea. Now. If you, I read Good to Great a couple of times last year again, which means that you see that a lot of the companies he took as examples are really not doing well today. So 15 years later, it didn't age that well. But the yeah. idea of brutal facts is a timeless idea. It's like, look at what are we doing really bad? This is what, this is what keeping us from being really, really great. So, But that's the most important thing. And I'm, I'm a very paranoid guy as well. I always think that... A, a disaster lurks just around every corner, basically. So, and I, I combine that with a hope that everything is going to go great. So, 15 years ago, if you met me as like, I was not CEO at Paradox until 2009, but as, as like a, a head of publishing in 2004, I had two moods basically, which was one was euphoria, like we're going to take over the world, everything is going great, and one was total. Uh, utter pessimism. There's like, 
everything is going to hell. We're going to go bankrupt. And then you had some normal like moods as well, which was like occasionally every fifth day or so. Otherwise, I was it was the pendulum swing between the two opposites, which is kind of very. It takes a lot of energy, but it also creates a lot of interesting <laughs> results in the end. And, and we said, like I know, I think it's a famous expression that you plan for the worst, but you hope for the best. It's another way we we did it. I mean, we ran the company on a cash flow schedule for ten years straight, only on cash flow. We didn't care about the EBITs or the EBITDAs or anything. We never raised money either. You probably heard that if you listened through a couple of pods. So when we, we were a couple of people who took it over in 2004. And after that, we only grew organically. So we, now when people come to me and say, do you, we want to raise a Series A or Series B or whatever, how do we do it? I'm like, I have no idea how to raise money. We just What we did was to pre-sell like concepts of games to different distributors throughout the world and get prepaid for that to make the game which mostly ended up in really buggy messes of games, but still it, it worked until digital distribution hit in 2008-9. So it was an interesting time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess living on a prayer, that's something that I uh, yeah. found. Could you, could you tell me about that? What's <laughs> yeah, I, uh, we, we used to have a graphic artist who uh, <clears throat> uh, every Friday, he because we, we never had money. We were bootstrapping the organization. We never had money, but we... One thing we did do was having uh, Friday afternoon beers. So at four o'clock, we just quit working and then we had a couple of beers and we just sat in the sofa and we just uh, like socialized basically. And, and then he always played living on a prayer because that's basically how we lived our lives. We were living on a prayer. We were hoping that we could pay the salaries next month as well. So then in <laughs> 2010, I think, or 2011, when things started going really well, we had to change it to the Queen's Don't Stop Me Now because living okay. on a prayer was not applicable anymore because we were past that that part of the business. But I think as an entrepreneur, uh, I think sometimes when people raise money, um, they miss the feeling of the uh, the need for bootstrapping because we felt every time we had to spend money, we had to prioritize really, really uh, selectively uh, on everything we did. And I think sometimes when you raise money, maybe you raise too much. And then it's easier to just spend it because it's just lying there in the bank, right? So uh, sometimes I feel like a very, very old man when I say to people, you shouldn't raise too much money because you lose the whole like idea of bootstrapping because bootstrapping is a process that teaches you how to prioritize business ideas, prioritizing like what, what kind of money to spend and on what, basically. That's a part of my philosophy as well. Yeah. I'm not sure it's actually correct, but... Well, it has worked so far, right? <laughs> so far, so good. So far, so good. We'll see. We'll see if you end up being one of those companies that Jim Collins w- would have looked at. And then, right, I, right, I don't right. think so. But we'll if see. you look 10 years from now, you look back, it's like, oh, my God, uh, that didn't work at all. You know? We'll go back to this interview and it'll be like, mm. exactly. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking about um, and thinking back to 2009 mm-hmm. there when the cash flow was pretty tough. Is that is that correct? Yeah, around those years, um, and, and and I know I've re- I've read that you uh, had to back it up by personal loans. Yeah, so could could you tell me about that time? Because to see the world as it is and the world as it was then, in in my head, not knowing you that well, but it's that it's it's stressful. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah. you you have a uh, you have a wife, and it's uh, you, you have personal loans. Yeah. Um, so how was that time for you, and how did you? 
because that also tells me that you obviously have a great passion for this company. Oh yeah. Because most people would have said, okay, this is too much risk. I'm I'm gonna quit or right. I'll, I'll back out of it. Um. So so what what brought you through that? You think? Yeah, I had bought out my other business partner a couple of times, bought his shares, and I didn't have any money, so I needed to take a loan on the apartment, much more than the apartment was worth. We just had our second kid, and he was like two months old, I think. He was born in February in 2009. And, uh, he, uh, so our, our, that's when our American distributors stopped paying us. Even though they sold a lot of games, they were in financial trouble because they took all our money and they spent it on other games that didn't do too well. So they didn't have any money to, to, to pay us. So we were really close to bankruptcy. Uh, and this is the only time in my life when I've not slept well at night because a lot of entrepreneurs ask me as well, like, should we raise money or should we just bootstrap and do our own thing or sh how should we build the company? And the only thing, the only uh, advice I can give to young entrepreneurs is that you should do things that makes you sleep well at night because if you don't sleep well at night, uh, you will not perform. So you should eat well and you should sleep well. Those are the two absolute basic rules of life. Uh, because if you don't, you're screwed anyways. So you should never take, if you don't want to have anyone else into the company, you shouldn't raise money. Even if it's, if it's the only way to take the company forward is to bring company in uh, or money into the company, try every other way than raising money. If you will be worried about the people coming in. If you think bootstrapping is stressful because you're not sure you can pay the salaries next month, maybe raising money is the uh, optional alternative. So depending on your personality and what you want to achieve, just make sure you sleep well at night. That's all. Um, and this is the only time in my life where, when I haven't slept well at night uh, because I was so worried about the, <clears throat> I don't know American law well enough to get the money back. I, we had to pay a lot of money up front to our lawyer, and I will never forget that because our American lawyer, whom we worked with since 2000, yeah, since, since the foundation of the company, basically, he said, I called him and said, uh, Fred is his name as well. I said, Fred, we can't pay your invoice. I'm sorry. And he said, I know. That's why I'm helping you out. And you know what? Uh, I will not make you pay the invoices until I won the case so you get your money back. And that's still one of the nicest things I've ever heard in 2009. So after that, we, we did a quick uh, process. We got a, a case through in Virginia because one of the founders of this company that owed us money was based in Virginia. So we sued in Virginia and won in six months. And we got uh, an, a warrant to get our, all our money back. And they did pay all our money back. And six months later, they went bankrupt, bringing down three other companies. Wow. Three European companies. So one, two French companies and a German one. Close call. That was a very close call. So it's always, when people ask about entrepreneurship and success and like, people say, have you been lucky? And I said, well, everyone who's an entrepreneur who's made it big has been lucky at a couple of points during the career. Uh, no doubt about that. But everyone has also worked very, very hard because it doesn't, nothing comes for free. But it's the combination of really hard work, some really good ideas and some luck and timing that makes the big concept uh, come through. So that is something I think we all have in common, no matter who you meet, at least. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs here in the Swedish tech scene, and they all tell the same story. It's like sometimes when I listen to podcasts as well, another entrepreneur, I'm like, mm, yeah, I recognize that. And sometimes I think maybe people, people <laughs> should grow bored of hearing the same story over and over again just from different people. But those are the three 
key elements. And without the hard work, you'll never get to have any luck at all in the first place. Um, I'm stealing your, I'm stealing your question, which is to ask why all the time. Yeah. yeah. Keep asking why. And I mean, so you so you went through uh, personal risk. You've been working really really hard for a long time. Uh, what is the big concept? The you know what is what is that dream in the distance that you are kind of sacrificing things in the present to make come true? Uh, it's it's funny actually because I came into Paradox when I was twenty nine, which is kind of late. Uh, so I'm a late bloomer when it comes to careers. Or before that, we ran a couple of companies, nothing successful and nothing that was spectacular in any way. But <clears throat> at Paradox. I found the passion that I've never found anywhere else before. First of all, I love games. I've been playing games since I was six years old. And at Paradox, for the first time in my life, I got to work with people who were just as dedicated as I was about creating something great. So we could do, we did things together that we really loved to do every day. And we created products that we not only uh, were proud of, but also played ourselves. So we could go out and play like Hearts of Iron 2 in a multiplayer game together with our fans that we invited to the office. And that kind of feeling, when you build upon things that are your true passion, I think anything is possible, basically. Now I'm going to start sounding like one of these preachers, but <laughs> that, that's where I found for the first time in my life, I'm like, I'm, I really love this. I really feel that I could walk through fire for the team and for the products that we have. And so being 29 years old, I mean, to some people like who are students now, 29 it sounds like you're you're almost going to retire, right? But it doesn't matter when you find the passion. I think some people find that they love running marathons when they're 60, and then they get to run 100 marathons before they uh, uh, pass away. So I, I guess like it's just about finding the spark that actually makes you passionate. Has it has it been burning ever since, or was there times when you you thought that oh, okay, this is uh, sure I'm I'm passionate, but let's not. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, b- like the burning passion is also it takes a lot of energy, so you have to sleep well, like I said before. And uh, but I think I've kept it alive to a certain extent. Like it's not as intense as it once was because when the company is bigger. You can't be as intense as a person. You can't be as operational as a person because it will have a negative impact on what you're doing. Because what is a big advantage when you're small, like being nimble, being fast moving, being very intense and passionate about things, might have a negative effect when you're a bigger company because people might get intimidated or they might think you're crazy or you you know. So it has a different implication on things. So even if things are moving uh, slower today and the immediate kicks that you get out of like the pure passion that you feel for a product is not as intense as it once was it's still there definitely so sometimes when I play our game like I just played Crusader Kings 3 now for like 15 hours the past weekend and I'm like this is why I'm, I'm still doing this it's still why I'm yeah. in the business oh yeah fantastic so what, what do, do you have any any favorites a proud moment when you look back and like, okay, this is what I've sacrificed, but look what I have in my hand here. Yeah, yeah but it, there are a lot of, th- like, I think my greatest moment as a businessman, it's going to sound ridiculous, I guess. It was when I, so I was going to sell Hearts of Iron 2. This is uh, 
late 2004. We just we were just uh, getting our our independence from the previous company, the management buyout there. And I traveled <clears throat> for 18 hours to Bentonville, Arkansas, um, okay. where Walmart have their head office. And I stood like so. I traveled for 18 hours, went directly to a hotel where Walmart had their buyer for entertainment products. Stood in line for another four hours because the meetings were were running over time. And then I got my 15 minutes to sell things. And I sold, I think, 25,000 games in like 15 minutes. And that was like a third of our yearly budget. And I was like, this is absolutely out of this world. It's oh, wow. still like the, uh, no, it's one of the biggest moments in my life when he would just said, because I just presented and said, this is the, this, uh, this is the target audience, this is the product, this is what we're trying to do. And he happened to be a big World War II buff, the buyer as well. So he's like, oh yeah, yeah I'll take 15,000 of that harsh iron. I'm like, woohoo. <laughs> and then 10,000 or something else. So that, that's still, when I think back, that's still the biggest moment of my whole career, of everything I've ever done, the biggest kick I've ever gotten out of, of anything. The second one was uh, the release of City Skylines, which just took off and went through the roof on the reviews and the sales and everything. So I was basically paralyzed for a week. It's like, wow, this was going. So I don't even know how to top this. Then you have to find a new source of energy and like, what's our next step after City Skylines? And maybe if I can take a third one was listing the company on the stock exchange as well. That was a big moment because I've been dreaming about that since I was very small, like 12 or 13, uh, like doing something with the stock exchange. And now, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Now, being on the stock exchange is fun and not fun at the same time. If the stock goes up, it's a lot of fun. If it goes down, I'm, I'm not too sure. But <laughs> The market is a fickle beast. It right? makes it hard to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that well, is actually true. It's like sometimes I'm just like, oh, we released a really good report. Why is the why is the stock dipping? You know, but market has uh, like, you never know what people are expecting. So it's yeah. interesting. And w when you when you look at the kind of uh, the capitalization value of the uh, when you, when you look at the stocks, yeah. Do you think of the company or because yeah, I mean you own do you still own thirty three point four percent? Yeah. Yeah. So what's what makes you nervous first? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not I'm not nervous about the stock price to be honest because my own financial security that was it was secured many years ago. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. And if you if you have if if my stocks are worth this or that, it doesn't matter honestly. The, the thing is that we've had, I know we've had some stock uh, options for the staff. And since we the stock program started when the stock was higher than it is today, it feels a bit like, it's a bit sad that I would love for people to make some money out of the stock program as well. So I guess we have to issue new like option programs as well. So, But that's the only thing I actually that, that actually bothers me on the stock price. On the other hand, you always want everything to go up. You always want the company to be valued more. You always want the revenue to be higher if you can choose between higher or lower as the only two options, right? But, but I wouldn't say I watch the stock price every day and worry about it. So I, th I think let's, uh, let's talk about the games for a little, right. for a little bit. Uh, so we create the games, you create the stories. Yeah. That is, for me, that's paradox. It you, is. You, you make it... Uh, complex games that people are meant to come back to and 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 to be able to to have a new experience every time yeah right 
because now we're seeing a not sure if I'd say a shift, but we definitely see a, a market pop up with the mobile phones. Yeah, for example. So and I, and I'm thinking, so or maybe you know how long is the average playing session of someone who plays, uh, let's say, Hearts of Iron, for example. Do you, do you know kind of what it is? I think it's somewhere in between one and a half and two hours per session. And on a cell phone, it's maybe five to ten minutes. That's what I'm thinking. So how do, how do you take uh, a game that is meant to be played for hours and put it in a format that's not only much smaller screen, but the time frame is just, uh, I mean, nothing compared to 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 your normal games that the, how, how do you cope with that challenge no that's the big that's a big challenge and now we we released Stellaris on mobile on, on the soft launch which had some borrowed art obviously as <laughs> so we had to take it down oh, again, yeah. which was a big big um screw up obviously on our end and, and the chinese developer as well uh but so that's our first test balloon. Can we actually take one of our games, translate the same kind of experience into a cell phone with the limited screen real estate that you have and still be able to have the same depth and experience as you have on PC without having to play for two hours? So Stellar is going to be the first test. And, and we have a couple of more mobile games in the pipeline. But since we, since we closed down more than 40% of all the projects we ever start, we haven't announced anything more yet. Yeah. But... We are trying. That is one of the challenges because if you take our other games, they are basically storytelling machines. I mean, with Crusader Kings 2 probably being number one, but even a game like City Skylines is a storytelling game. It's like there's a piece of gamer article called The City Skylines Town with Only One House where they play with the unlimited money mod and they only place one house with one family that they follow from like cradle to death, basically. It's, it's a great, great story. And that's the way our games are meant to be played. If you look at, we don't do esports yet with our games, so we don't have proper competitions, but we've done a couple of, of more live action role playing or event like experiences with something called the Grandest Lawn, where 100 people come to a castle in Poland and play Europa Universalis 4 in 30 countries, I think. So it's three wow. to four people per country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a year ago, it was an actual, if it was a bishop or a priest who played the Pope. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so he was the papal state. It was an actual uh, actual bishop. Yeah. And, uh, and that is super popular when we stream it because it's basically a storytelling on how like Renaissance Europe is evolving. And uh, that's more the kind of experience we're looking for than a proper e-sport, which is 100% competition, right? And you see it ends in two hours and then it's over. Uh, the Grand Islam goes on for three days. So it's it's... I said, if we're ever going to be an esport, we're going to be the golf of esports. It's going to be slow. The commentary is going to be yeah. not as active. Iron as in, Man. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. More Iron Man yeah. or or That's is great. it biathlon yeah. in, in skiing, for yeah. example? Or yeah, it's not the basketball or ice hockey experience. It's more the golf. It takes yeah. like two days before it's finished, yeah. and then at the end, you don't really know who won, anyways. Well, in golf, you do. In, in Europe, in Rosal, this is more unclear. But yeah. it's, uh, we do. We do. Uh, crown a winner we do that and uh, i mean i i guess there's uh, with all the new technique that's coming uh, and uh, for a moment putting aside uh, like the, the the big data and the, the artificial intelligence and think more of uh, vr and augmented reality yeah do you see that merging with these kinds of events that, that you're explaining uh, I would love. Future? I would love to do like virtual reality. I've been very reluctant to to embrace virtual it's reality. It's not really popping yet, right? 
No, I think the um, the uh, virtual reality ha headsets have been too cumbersome to use. Uh, I think it's been, first of all, clumsy and like technology has been expensive. It's been expensive to develop games for VR if the games are supposed to be big and have a lot of depth. Um, but now when the VR technology is more refined, like maybe a pair of glasses or something easier to wear, uh, it might actually take off. And I would like to do, like if you take World of Darkness, for example, Vampire the Masquerade is the biggest live-action role-playing community in the world. It's much bigger than any other role-playing game. So if you could do a virtual reality live-action role-playing game, with your character that you dress up, you decide what it looks like and everything, and you, all you do is talk into the microphone with other people in the room. That might be something that actually adds to the experience and makes something totally new and totally like that no one has ever seen before. And that's the way I think VR is supposed to be used, either as very advanced simulations or as very social games, where you actually meet up. I just mentioned it briefly, but uh, thinking about big data and and artificial intelligence, that seems to be. I mean, so I, I'm interviewing people from from different industries all the time, and that always seems to be on everyone's lips. Yeah. Do, do you see that merging with with the gaming industry in a in an efficient way? Or? Well, artificial intelligence has so many layers to it, right? It's like <clears throat> one of the things we were thinking is we could implement an AI that learns like machine learning AI for Hearts of Iron, for example. And I think if we did that and put our focus into it, we would probably be able to develop an AI that won like all of the games in super hardcore mode. Yeah. But who wants to play an AI that wins all the time? Well, no one, right? If you play Deep Blue in chess, you're going to quit playing yeah. chess after a while because it's not fun anymore, right? Because you know you're going to lose every time. So what you need to do if you, if you take the AI in-game AI specifically, uh, you have to adapt it to who is playing against this AI, because you can't have an AI that wins all the time, because it's not, we're into entertainment, not, we're not a technology company, we're an entertainment company. But AI can be helpful in many other ways, like what do you want to play more of? What do people actually see more? It's more analytics than AI, but still. Uh, what else, yeah, but AI is making a lot of progress in many areas. On the other hand, I think AI is also the, uh, it's the umbrella word for a lot of different things that previously was called, when I was working with CRM, like mm -hmm. before, before Paradox, it was called natural language processing. When you could read an incoming email and like guess what the people were trying to do. And this was like 2001. So the term is there, it's just that it's got a new umbrella term above it. Yeah. So. But it's interesting nonetheless. And then I, I think, cause you, you all see in the gaming industry, you see different business model and pricing models popping up yeah um, like instead of me just going in to buy fifa at a you know at gamestop when they were still alive um now you can have a game for free and then you can purchase add-ons within the within the game where you can have a subscription um do, do, do you see that you're coming closer and closer to like a perfect price discrimination with uh, you know if you if you could pick up data on, on your players see what they like and then kind of discriminate in that way do you do you see a potential for for new business models and then yeah we don't do that because ai always posts its question on on uh, morale as well ethics yeah. and morale right so what is a right to do like if we can see 
that you're about to quit playing Hearts of Iron 4 because we know you lost your third game in a row. Should we go in and alter the AI in real time to make sure you don't lose? We don't do that today. We probably could be able to do that uh, if we had analytics tools to understand why you quit playing. But we have some sort of belief that we don't think we should do things like that. And it's only based on ethics. But like you say, the, the free-to-play market is interesting because it's 100% price discrimination or you choose how much you pay to play the game. So I've played a lot of League of Legends back in the days. I don't play that much anymore because I, I, I just need to spend my time on other things. But <clears throat> League of Legends is perfect in that because they monetize basically skins for your like avatar or your champion. or You, you could buy a lot of... of different vanity items that doesn't really affect the gameplay, which is, I think, is a perfect business model. And they make a lot of money from that. So people choose themselves what they want to buy, and it doesn't change how good you are at the game because it's still going to be you playing League of Legends. Right? Yeah. So I love that. My kids play a lot of Fortnite as well. And okay. it's, it's the same business model there. I think it's good. And I hear Football Manager is a... Yeah, I, I used to play a lot of Football Manager. I don't anymore because I, I it's one of the few games I just couldn't put down, so I had to uninstall it completely. I tried Football Manager 19 last year, but I was like, no, I'm not going to do this too to good. myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's way too good. It's it's actually my favorite game of all time is Football Manager. Okay. Um, but <clears throat> uh, I think, so when I play together with the kids as well, we play FIFA as well so i play fifa we play fortnite we play a couple of we play an like independent survival game called the forest um but <clears throat> fifa is also good i think now people are going to hate me for this but i think they have a good monetization model like with fifa ultimate team i think that's an excellent one because we spend almost no money whatsoever but you can spend a lot of money if you want but it doesn't change or alter your gaming experience that much because well your players get better but so does your opponents because if you score more against like the opponents you meet right now, you'll be ranked higher and meet other kinds of people. So it's, well, it's self-balancing in a way. So I think their business model is good. And I really love FIFA as well. I think FIFA 20 was kind of a, a screw up in a certain way. I think FIFA 19 is better, but it's from year to year, I guess. Yeah, so um, I'm thinking, I, I want to touch on briefly, because um, you studied business. I did. Right, and Japanese at uh, the business school uh, at University of Gothenburg. Is that how you say it in English? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, the Gothenburg School of Economics and Commercial Law, I okay. think, was the name of it. Um, I did. So I spent a year in Japan, um, and I used to speak Japanese back in the days as well. But it was in 97, 98, so it's a couple of years ago now. So I spent uh, a lot of time in Sapporo in northern Japan. Uh, and... Japan is a great place. Like it's a lot. Of, I recommend everyone to visit Japan because you'll never see anything like it. Um, they're very Japanese people are very specific culturally in so many ways, and it's super interesting and it's a great country. Uh, but it wasn't the country where I wanted to live, so I figured that out. It's like I have a lot of Japanese friends. I would love to go visit, or I do love to go visit Japan because I've been a couple of times. But it's not a place where I want to live. It's a bit too crowded. Uh, it's a bit like the culture doesn't fit me perfectly because I'm a rebel at heart. I like to do things differently than everyone else. I like to question things. I like to be like transparent. I don't like to obey orders. 
I like, and and so to a certain extent, the Japanese culture didn't fit me specifically. Yeah, but again, it's a great country. Then I, I think, so coming from a kind of economics and business background, and then you're going into the gaming industry, you obviously had a, I know you sold uh, games when you were 15 with your uh, older brother. Correct. So you obviously had a, you had a huge passion for this, going into to this industry. But did you find any, I, I'm, so now I'm thinking for, okay, the perspective of an SSE student. Right. Uh, did you see, uh, with, a, with an economics and, and a business background, did you see any barriers going into to Paradox? Was it was there any hurdles that you had to not coming from a programming or an IT? Right, right. Account? I <clears throat> I think that if if you have a good product understanding, if you're a huge gamer yourself, you understand the driving factors behind why people play. If you're not a gamer at all, it's going to be much harder for you to get into the industry. I think that if you love the products of what of the business that you're getting into, it's it's easier. You don't have to be a programmer to work here. Uh, but you do have to like games if you're going to work in depth, like I did the first couple of years with games. Nowadays, we're 500 people. Not everyone has to be a gamer anymore. It's like <clears throat> it's redundant to have so many gamers. But if you are a gamer, it might be an advantage because you get a greater understanding of everything. And you can have a lot of fun conversations with the game directors and the game designers and whatnot about games. But it's not absolutely necessary. Now, this is one of the nerdiest companies probably in, in all of Stockholm. We even have, like, in, in the attic here, we have a room dedicated to board game and role-playing games. So it's like, so if you like that, it's obviously a huge advantage. Yeah, it's fantastic keeping a company culture alive. I mean, it's, it's obvious when you walk in here, but for the, for the listeners that can't see, I, right. you know, the hallway out here, it's... Uh, it's and I, I forgot, when you mentioned, like, I, I, when you asked about the biggest moments in the career as well, so I came to think of another one. I used to play a lot of role-playing games when I was a kid, the tabletop role-playing games. And uh, so when we got to buy uh, World of Darkness with Vampire the Masquerade, that I played a lot as 17, 18 years old, that was fantastic as well. So it was like the circle was complete. So you used to play the role-playing game, and now you can buy it. It's like, no, that was fantastic. And now we're working on Bloodlines 2 as well. Hopefully it's going to be out in 2020 here. And, and uh, yeah, it looks great. Well, I think to, um, to wrap up, uh, I read in, and I'm pretty sure it was uh, Dagens Industry, uh, and they, they, they mentioned that, that uh, Piet, yet has to call you for a Sommarprat. And, and you said right. that, yeah, if I, if I was invited, I would speak to people under 30. Yeah, yeah. I so would. I'm, that really got me interested, because I'm, you know, the most people that, that are studying at my school are under 30. Yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking, what, what, briefly, what, do you have any takeaways? What would you say in that? Not to spoil your upcoming Sommarprat. No, but... But what would you, what are some... Um, guidelines that you I think that a lot of people who watch people succeed from the outside and they look in they see a straight line from A to Z and it's never like that so when I was a kid like I have a story from even from like it was football the world championships of football three three years ago right that was it must have been a European championship three years ago and I was visiting my hometown of Umeå it's not a big town right and a lot of people up there know who I am because I've been in the papers there a lot, obviously. And 
so my old teacher from high school is sitting at a bar watching a game. And I see him, so I walk up to him and I say, hi, Thomas, how's it going? And he looks at me like he's never seen me before. So I'm like, you recognize me, I'm Fred. I used to be called Lingon back in those days. And he's like, no, I have no idea. I'm like, I was in your class 1993, blah, 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 blah. I studied natural science. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm so I know I was like a teacher back then. I'm like, I was in the same class as Johan and uh, Juar. And he's like, oh yeah, those guys. Johan, he's re doing really great. He's a doctor now. I'm like, you're right, he is doing great. Like, so he didn't recognize me to begin with. I was not a recognizable person. I was never captain in my football team. I was never a lead, like elected someone who would be a leader somewhere at any point. It was not, people just didn't recognize any abilities that was worth noticing in my personality or in what I did, which is kind of interesting with the journey that I've had. I've always had a strong self-confidence though. I've always known I can achieve a lot of things. But I think what people need to know is that there is a couple of combinations that makes you successful, I think. One of them is the passion and the passion overshadows everything else. If you have the passion, you will develop a lot of other things that are necessary to go ahead and do what you want to do or, or where you're destined to do, if you want to sound more like a biblical story. Uh, but because I knew paradox can be great, what kind of things do I need to develop to make this company great? And then I started like changing my own behavior to be a better leader. I st started doing a lot of other things, but none of these things that people now connect to me or my personality was seen when I was a kid or even under 29. No one would have guessed I would be the one who ran Paradox today if they even looked in my natural science class of 30 people. And that is actually very interesting. And I think a lot of people would like to hear that. It's like, okay, I've never been a leader. I've never been this. I've never been particularly successful at this. My grades from nine, like when I finished ninth grade, my, my scores were not too high. I was given, like, I was the last one accepted into natural science class because my grades were too low. So it's, life takes interesting turns depending on what you choose to do and depending on how much work you actually put into it. That's what I would like to tell people. So uh, I woke up at 29. So my mom always says that when people say, oh, Fred must have worked hard his whole life. And she said, well, he woke up at 29 is what she's saying. And that's where I got it from. It's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I figured out what I wanted to do at age 29. You don't have to do it before that point. Maybe you can be 35 as well or 60 and start running marathons, as I mentioned before. Uh, because I think a lot of young people are really stressed out about what they're supposed to do. And it's like, I'm 23 and I don't have a life plan yet. I'm like, oh man, it's no worries. You can wait until you're 40 probably. And it's still fine. That's my pitch for the talk it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> Fredrik Wester, thank you so much for being in this uh, podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. That's a great note to, uh, to end on. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. You have been listening to The Future Is Now, the official podcast of Handelsdagarna 2020. Special thanks to Fredrik Wester for participating and to our host, Ludvig Hartler. The podcast is produced by me, Ludvig Wolberg. We will be back next week with a new interesting guest. Thank you.